We are studying through the book of James. We're in James chapter 5 this morning, and uh, we will be reading verses 7 through 11. This is a unit of thought. Uh, We probably will not get all the way through this today, but um, I, I, I really think that's okay because we need to come back and park on some of the themes that are found in this incredible passage of Scripture. So, hang on to your spiritual hat, because I, I think if you have found yourself going through any kind of a trial in the past, or you are in a trial right now, or, unbeknownst to you, you are getting ready to go into a trial, these words have meaning for you. So would you please stand as we read this word together? I'll ask you to read silently as uh, I read this aloud. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 11. The title of the message is, Be Patient Until He Comes. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains? You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord. Now the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Father, you are a great God. You are in sovereign control over the cosmos. Things just do not happen that are outside of your divine providence. I do not understand it. I dare say none of us does. Lord, we know that you are in charge of our lives individually. You are in charge of what is going on in our families. You're in charge of what's going on in our neighborhoods and indeed in our city, in our state, in our nation, and in our world. And so, Father, growing out of that, we would obey the words of Scripture when they tell us to pray and to ask that your will be done in our lives individually and then in our families, in our city, in our state, in our country, and in our world. We pray, Father, for our leaders, for you commanded us to do so. We pray for our president. We pray for, Lord, I I don't know how else to say it, the mess in politics 
can we expect better, Lord, when human resources are all people are looking at? So, Father, we pray that you, again, in your divine providence, would guide and would direct. Your word tells us to pray not only for that, but for ministries. And there's so many ministries that are in the life of our church and that we support. And Father, today I want to lift up First Stone Ministries. What a vital ministry that helps people in their sexual sin and brokenness. Be with Stephen Black as their leader. And God, would you help that ministry to, to flourish again in the midst of a culture in which they are for sure swimming upstream. Would you bless them? Now, Lord, for those of us who need an encouraging word, the motivation of why we should learn patience in the midst of trials and struggles, I pray that you would speak to us from this book, the book of James today, and help us as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. We thank you most of all for the Lord Jesus Christ who gave his body to be broken, his blood to be shed for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. I think it's obvious that as we read through this passage of Scripture, that unlike last week, James is speaking specifically to Christians. He said, brothers, brothers, brothers. But he was speaking to Christians going through trials. Now, in case you weren't here last week, there is a flow. There's a flow to all of Scripture. But if, if you will look, you will see, be patient, therefore, depending on the translation you're using. The therefore always points back to something that has been said before. And so it points directly back to the, the words of James when he was talking about the oppression of the poor in the church at the hands of wealthy landowners. And they were suffering. We're talking destitute. And so right after that, following hard on the heels of that, James speaks to his beloved brothers and he says these words. He says, be patient. Now, this is not the first time he's told us to have this same kind of attitude when we're going through trials. Do you remember in the very first chapter? Chapter 1 and, and along about verse 2 when he said, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you go through various kinds of trials. So mark this down. You know it's true. The older you get, the more you know it's true. When you're young, you may wonder about this, but as you get older, you know this is true. For the Christian, trials and suffering are not a matter of if. They are a matter of when and how. Now, I want you to notice something, and you may not see it immediately, but if you look back at this passage of Scripture, James uses two different words for a, a general term that might be called patience. Four times, get this, Four times, two commands, he uses the word patient, and literally, it's a word that means long of temper. 
or long-suffering in verses 7 and 8 and verse 9. No wonder. And I hope that when, when we read through this a few moments ago that you might have wondered, why would James put something about grumbling right in the middle of a section on suffering? For good reason. And we'll get to that a little bit later on. It is absolutely connected to the attitude of grumbling or complaining. Now get this, not, not just against God. In fact, it's not against God in this context. It is specifically against other believers. So, four times he uses the word be patient. Be patient. Have patience. Look at the patience of certain kinds of people like farmers and prophets. And twice he uses the word endurance or steadfastness. It means to remain under. Some of you might be saying, well, Pastor, I thought you said this was going to be encouraging. I don't necessarily want to remain under the suffering or the trials that I'm undergoing right now. Hang on. So let's look at a working definition of patience. I do not want you to try to write this down. I want you to get a feel. Just kind of let this sink into your heart, and I'm going to refer to a, a pastor by the name of John Piper who wrote an incredible book entitled Future Grace, tying everything that he said to the grace that is to be manifest in the future. And it has, it has reference to what we're talking about because in a minute we're going to get to the motivation because the Lord is coming. Okay? So let's listen, or not listen, but let's look at what John Piper says. This is going to be on two different slides. And just get a feel for this thing called patience, what it's not and what it is. And we'll come back to kind of fill in some gaps for you. Impatience, not having patience, is a form of unbelief. Let that sink in. It's what we begin to feel when we begin to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. It springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. It may be prompted by a long wait in a checkout line or a sudden blow that knocks out half our dreams. The opposite of impatience is not, and I'll put in here what I've heard Christians do in a glib way, oh, praise the Lord anyway. No. The opposite of impatience is not a glib denial of loss. It is a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place. That's exactly where many of you find yourself today. The unplanned place of obedience. To walk with God at the unplanned place pace of obedience. Doesn't it seem like when you're suffering sometimes 
time just goes so agonizingly slow. To wait in his place and at his pace, and the key is faith in future grace. I hope you took that in. And if you'll remember, there is a certain kind of attitude that we have to have in order to to receive truth like this. And it's found in the previous chapter, chapter 4, and beginning with verse 5, or 6, excuse me. It says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Just slide on down to verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So patience is not just a passive resignation. Patience means to stay put and to stand fast when you would either like to take matters into your own hands or you'd like to run away. Patience means to wait on the Lord, to get out of the way so He can act, to trust God, and then to do what you are supposed to do. Now, the two different words that are used here, many Greek scholars think that they have to do with two different situations, and I would find myself in agree, uh, agreement with this, so that it covers all the bases. The word long-suffering deals with patience toward people. The word steadfast or endure refers to patience with respect to your circumstances. And three different times, now I want you to watch this, and you can refer to to your Bible to see what I'm talking about. Three different times, James gives a motivation for why we are to be patient. And there are all kinds of self-help books and all of the rest of those kinds of things, even in our church life. But he gives three different reasons, and watch how that he increases the intensity of each one of the motivations for being patient. Each time he says this, be patient because the Lord is coming. First time he says, he's coming, just a matter of fact. But then the next time he says, be patient, he adds something. Just in case you might be wondering, uh, not only is the Lord coming, folks, he is coming soon. It says here in the ESV, his coming is near. It's at hand. And then the last time, he brings it up right next to us when he says, the Lord is coming. And oh, by the way, he is standing right at the door. And do you know what is going to happen when Jesus comes back? Church, this is for real. When Jesus comes back, he is going to right every wrong. He wanted those believers to know that because they were being terribly wrong. He wants us to know that he will right every wrong 
wrong in this broken world. But he will not do that until Jesus comes back. So he says that you and I as believers must patiently endure and to live in great eager anticipation of his coming. I just want to quote a couple of things to you here off of the the worship guide. I don't always read the quotes, but I will in this case. David Paul Tripp, the very last quote, the coming of the Prince of Peace is a promise that everything that is damaged by sin will be restored. Aren't you glad? But I want to read one by Kent Hughes, and then we'll come back and make a couple of comments about this. In my ministry... I have noticed that when people are hurting, they frequently express their hope for Christ's return. Oh, I wish the Lord would return today. But I've never heard anyone say, things are going so well, I wish Christ would return right now. So let's look at these. Starting with verse 7, you you see your outline. And we will not not get to the last two uh, items on the outline, the last two uh, verses. Today we'll do verses 7 through 9. And then we'll come uh, around the Lord's table. First of all, verse 7, a general command to be patient in trials. Remember, long-suffering toward people, steadfast in circumstances. The motivation for patience, what is it? The Lord is coming. It's a simple command. Now, now remember, simple is not always easy. You got that? When a preacher says it's simple, don't you interpret it as this is going to be easy. No. It's never easy. It is simple as far as a command, and it's a simple motivation. But here is something that I'm just going to throw out to you today, and I think that I have fallen into this. Have we lost in some way the motivation to be patient? Have we lost the motivation of the coming of the Lord? Let's look at the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verses 27 and 28. The writer reminds us of something. It's appointed for a man to die once. Now, if the Lord does not come back in your lifetime, how many of you in this room fit that first part of the description? Was that confusing? I guess it was. How many of you have been appointed to die? All of you in this room. And somehow, I I don't know if it's something that the older people pass on to the younger people or it kind of migrates up. Somehow we just don't really believe that. We kind of believe we're going to be around forever. And it's appointed once for a man to die. What comes after that, according to the writer of the Hebrews? Hmm. So I said we need to break this into a couple sermons and come back and talk about this next week. What's going on in the judgment? Well, we'll talk about that. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. I don't need to see a show of hands, but how many of you in this room today 
are in the company of the many. I, I, I couldn't even bear to think that there's someone in here today. You're not in that company. Jesus has not borne your sins. You will find the judgment of God a fearsome thing. The, the writer of the Hebrews says that. Now listen, here's what it says. Having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's talking to us believers. This is huge. Not to deal with sin. Why? Why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Because our sin has been dealt with once and for all on the cross. But to save those... Now watch this. Who's he going to save according to the last phrase? Those who are eagerly waiting for him. According to the writer of the Hebrews, what is one of the main signs that you're in Christ that he has borne your sins, that you're in the company of the many? What is one of the main signs? That you wait eagerly for the coming of Jesus Christ. So, honestly, Would you say this last week you have thought constantly, you have thought much of the time, you have thought maybe a little bit or you have thought not at all on the coming of Christ? Not in reference to your sins, but the coming of Christ so you can see him. Stand before him at the Bema seat. That's for next week, Lord willing. Have you eagerly anticipated the coming of the Lord? According to the writer of Hebrews, that's one of the signs that you are in the company of the many. Now, I am not saying that if you have not consciously thought about the coming of the Lord, I, I, just, I just want to say to you, and if you're loving Jesus and following him, then you, you are probably his child, okay? But I think we've been robbed. And maybe it's guys like me, people in the pulpit, who do not focus on the coming of Christ as we ought to, who, who focus on it as a motivation for being patient and being steadfast. Now, I hope there are none in this category, but I would dare say that there are some, and I would call these either lost people or babes in Christ. Hebrews writes about those who are immature, who have to have milk instead of meat. But there could be, in the, listen, in the minds of some, that you don't eagerly anticipate his coming because you are enjoying all of the things that life has to hold. And you really would rather he wait. So you can enjoy more. So I would say to you, I, I say it as lovingly as I can, if you're a Christian, you need on the basis of the word to grow up 
to begin to look at what the scriptures say, or if you do not possess true saving faith, that you would come to a place today of saying, I need Jesus to forgive me of my sins. I need to come into that many for whom Jesus died. I I think there's another thing. I've got to be careful here. But I think that there is sometimes when the second coming is mentioned, it's only mentioned in terms of how and when and not in terms of the presence of Jesus in his coming. And so I, I think what I'm trying to say to you, I don't think it really matters about your view on the millennium. If you're premillennial, if you're that, that means Jesus is coming before the millennium. If you're postmillennial, that means Jesus is coming after the millennial. If you're amillennial, that means you don't really believe there's a millennium literally. It's it's a, a symbol. Or if you're a panmillennialist, you just think it's going to pan out. The key is not that you adhere to any particular kind of doctrinal statement about that. The key is that you know that Jesus is coming, literally, physically, bodily. And that's the best motivation in James' mind for being patient in the midst of trials. And as James always does, he gives a wonderful illustration. He is a master illustrator. And he said, look, look at the farmer. Got any farmers in here? Or want to be farmers? Got a little plot in your backyard? Hey, okay. If you're, if, if you're not patient, don't be a farmer. Okay? Because a farmer knows that he can't, listen, he can't control the rain patterns. There is a specific thing that's going on here, early rains, later rains, but a farmer basically knows he can't control the weather, and so he has to do his part, but he basically has to wait on the Lord because he can't control it. Does that sound familiar as to what some of the things we've been studying in James talks about? It's up to God, so he trusts, and he does what he's supposed to do. Now, what happens when you as a farmer are impatient? And you planted some, let's say you planted some carrots a couple of weeks ago. And you're just anxious to have some carrots. And I've heard of people actually doing this. If you're impatient, you're going to go out there and you'll see the stalks beginning to come up. And you're going to pull out that carrot and see how it looks. Well, do you know what you've done? You've just ruined it. You refuse to wait on God to do the work. So what happens when we become impatient in our spiritual life? Well, just ask Abraham. There's no greater promise given than the promise given to Abraham. You'll have a son, and he's going to be, it's through him. It's through him. He is the child of promise. What did Abraham do? He became impatient. He did not wait on God and an Ishmael was born. born. What happens if we don't be patient? Ask Moses. He missed a trip to the Holy Land. 
because he was impatient and he struck the rock. Just ask Peter. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he was impatient. Jesus, if you don't do something, I will. And he whipped out his sword. He almost became a murderer. So basically what James is saying, the force of the command here is stop being impatient. Listen, stop being impatient with yourselves and with others and with your circumstances and with God. Now let's move on. Verse 8, a second command to be patient. Here it is again, another command in trials. And then he adds something to establish your heart. Again, the motivation for patience is what? Lord is coming. How quickly? He's coming soon. Now, let me just ask you this. Because you see something like that. Is the Lord coming soon? Oh, wait, wait. Let's get into the realm not... A, you, you just get, And the answer is correct. But you just gave me the Sunday school answer. I want your gut emotional answer. Is the Lord coming soon? Sometimes in the midst of trials and circumstances beyond your control, it feels like forever. And you say, Lord, where is the hope? Where is the promise of your coming? Well, that's something that scoffers also say in the last days. They'll come with their scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They'll ask, where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, that's died. All things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. A thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. I think a human illustration would help us to understand this. For a child, let, let's take a, uh, how many, uh, got any four or five-year-olds in here today? Got, got a few? Okay. When October comes, let me put back that back. When October comes, then you got November, December, and, and Christmas is coming. And for you as a four or five-year-old, it seems like an eternity. But for those of us who are older, our, uh, us grandparents, <gasps> October gets here and it, ah, it's right around the corner. We've got to get busy. We've got to buy presents. So how is this a powerful motivation? coming of the Lord. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. And if that doesn't sound like much of an encouragement, hang on, because it is. And so James is telling us not only to be patient because the Lord is coming, by the way, he's bringing his recompense, his reward with him, to repay everyone for what he has done, you will not stand before God in judgment. That's already been done. We said that a minute ago. But you will stand before the Lord Jesus at the judgment seat, the elevated 
platform where you will receive rewards for service done to the Lord faithfully or you will suffer loss. Again, I don't have time to get into it today, but that is a reality. We're to fix. We're to establish. And that word means to fix. It's used in a number of different places. One of the places in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's used is is Luke 16, the story of of Lazarus and the rich man. Remember that story? And Lazarus dies and he goes to the bosom of Abraham and and the rich man dies. He goes to, to, to hell and he calls out, hey, Abraham, can you send Lazarus over here to help me? And and he says this, between you and us, there is a great gulf that is fixed. It's immovable. And James uses that same word to say to you and to me, fix, fasten your heart on the reality of the coming of Christ. Jan informed me the other day that she had... uh, piece of the bumper below her car that was loose, kind of dangling down there. She said, honey, you need to fix it. I said, okay, I think I can do that. Now, for those of you who are, and I'm a wannabe handyman, but I have learned that I can fix really a lot of stuff with duct tape. No kidding. It is amazing. I carry it with me on my car. If you spring a leak in your radiator hose, duct tape. And drywall screws. Okay, are there a few of you who can relate to me? So I got the car up on the ramp. I put it under there. I got those, no duct tape. That's too gross. Got those drywall screws. They're kind of self-tapping. I'm telling you what. That bumper is fixed. <laughs> it, it is solid. Now, I, I told her how it happened. You know how it happens. You run over one of those barriers that stop cars, and then you pull off, and it just rakes it off. It ain't going to rock rake the bumper. It, it'll maybe take the whole front end. <laughs> it is fixed. Now, that, that is a picture. We are to fix, rivet our minds, our hearts, on the truth of the coming of Christ. And what happens when we don't? Well, that's what's next. Verse 9. If you do not fix your heart on the reality that Christ is coming and the hope that that gives you, you will not be patient in trials. You will grumble. And that's why he gives that third command. Be patient, be patient, don't grumble. Grumble, complain, groan. That's a literal meaning of the word. And I thought when I read that, I thought, oh my. Oh, that, that just, I, I, I do that. Have you ever done that? Well, yeah, yeah, there's one right there. Uh, when, when you just, something, you're impatient, something happens, somebody does something, and you go, ugh. That's a picture of it. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Now look what he says against each other. Why would James fit a a command not to grumble, not to complain, not to mutter 
against a brother or a sister right here. Isn't it obvious? By the way, for this, I do not want you to be thinking about your neighbor. That's the easiest thing to do. Because you're, you're going to think about your neighbor, you're going to think about someone who is impatient with you. I want you to think about your own impatience and your own grumbling. Maybe you're one of those few people that you, you never get impatient, you never grumble. Then you, you can get a pass on this. But if you're like me, you need this. I'll just put it like this. Today, some of you are tired. And some of you are scared. And some of you are angry. And some of you are in pain. And some of you are under pressure and you are harassed. Some of you are attacked. And you're overlooked. And you're taken for granted. And according to James, you need to watch your heart and your mouth. Because what you're likely to do is the same thing that I've been likely to do on many, many occasions. You're likely to look for someone to blame for your pain or in your pain. And again, if you're like I am, you can become hypercritical in a second, but it can last for a lifetime. And by the way, you don't have to look very far for people to disappoint you. People will let you down in some way. What does grumbling do? According to Galatians 5, it destroys, it ruins relationships, it fragments families wrecks the workplace, it mangles marriages, it crushes the spirit of a church. What's the motivation for not grumbling? Listen to this, folks, so that you will not be judged. By whom? By the judge. Remember, what have we been saying? The Lord, the judge, is coming soon. In fact, according to James, he's standing right at the door. And when he comes, the critical Christian will be criticized. The judging Christian will be judged. The righteous judge, the Lord, will expose the critical spirit and those bitter words that you thought no one noticed. And we're going to come back next week and we're going to talk more about this exact thing. Just so you'll know, that was heavy what I just said. Remember, I am not saying that a Christian will lose his or her salvation. But that there is discipline in this life and the reward or loss of at the Bema seat of Christ. So what do you do if you find that you're impatient today? As Piper said earlier, impatience is a sin. What do you do with all of your sin? You leave it where it 
has been Christian on the cross of Jesus Christ. And I would say to you that if you're a follower of Christ, that you come to a place where the gospel feeds you today. But you know that every sin has been forgiven. That's why we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that out of that, he calls us to a new kind of living. I'd like the men to take their positions. We're going to be serving the Lord's Supper, and I want to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That's gospel. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, Christ has made you worthy, but make sure that you do not drink or eat in an unworthy manner. We'll be guilty of the profaning of the body and the blood of our Lord. Let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Father, I thank you for the beautiful symbol of the Lord's Supper. The fact that through the gospel of Jesus Christ, all of our sins, past, present, and future, were put on the cross when we believed and repented. They're taken out of the way. No more debt, no more guilt. And through the death of Christ, we were given a new center of being. We were given a new life, raised from the dead to walk in newness of life. Help us to be reminded of those realities as we now partake of the elements of the bread and the cup. I thank you for this and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.